You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 40. This, is the, uh, this will be the, the final sermon in our short series on Jeremiah. If you think about the, the way the book is laid out, which is, is quite challenging in some ways, but I think Jeremiah chapters 34 through 45 can be divided into a couple of, of sections. 34 through 39, which we looked at last week, is the events that led up to the fall of Jerusalem. And uh, with that promise to Ebed-Melech, uh, chapters 40 through 45 contain the events after the fall of Jerusalem. And they also end with a promise, this time to Baruch, Jeremiah's scribe. But both of these sections, I think, have the same theme that they keep coming back to over and over again. And we've seen it over and over again in our study, which is resisting the word of the Lord. They simply would not listen to it. So I've picked out a few verses from the chapters. We can't read all, all of chapter 40 through 45, but I've picked out a few verses so that we can kind of get an idea of the story and the message that we'll be talking about this morning. So let's begin in Jeremiah chapter 40. Remember, this is after the fall of Jerusalem. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. When he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold... I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I'll look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever you think it is right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him, that is Jeremiah, an allowance of food and a present, and let him go. And then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. Now look at chapter 42, verse 1. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan, the son of Kare, and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near, and they said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you, and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us. That the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. Whenever the Lord answers you, I'll tell you. I'll keep nothing back from you. 
And then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which, your, which the Lord your God sends to us. Whether it's good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Now look in verse 10. If you will remain in this land... Then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. This is the Lord speaking. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you're afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I'm with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I'll grant you mercy, that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. But if you say... We will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread, and we will dwell there. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine of which you're afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. So that was Jeremiah's message to them. Look at chapter 43, verse 1. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people of these words of the Lord their God, which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah, the son of Hoshai, and Johanan, the son of Kareh, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. And then verse 7 says what they did. They came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Just a few more. Chapter 44, verse 8. Jeremiah's message again from the Lord. Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you have come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? Have you forgotten the evil of your fathers? The evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, their own evil, and the evil of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They've not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Verses 16 and 17, as for the Lord, word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. We will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven, Pour out drink offerings to her, as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. Verse 25 is the Lord's response. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Here's what the Lord says. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Just a few more. Chapter 45, verse 2. Thus says the Lord... 
The God of Israel to you, O Baruch, you said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning. I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. That is, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. Let's pray together. Lord, we we thank you for your word today, and we pray that it has fallen already on fertile ground of our hearts that are humbled and ready to hear it, Lord. Do your work in us today, we pray, and I ask that you would use me as your servant i pray that you would increase and i would decrease and your word would go forth and i pray it in jesus name amen this section is the last recorded words of jeremiah chapters 46 through 51 are prophecies that he gave earlier to the other nations, they were recorded beforehand, but they were added here at the end of the book. Uh, but this section here is the last recorded words of Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem. And, and in many ways, it's, there, it's a sad conclusion to, to what can be described only as, as an incredible 40-year prophetic ministry that Jeremiah had. How in the world did Jeremiah survived for 40 years in this um, ministry. How did he endure this? Riken notes this, he was ignored, he was rejected, he was scorned, he was humiliated, he was beaten, imprisoned, put in the stocks, he was falsely accused, he was condemned as a traitor, twice he was cast into the dungeon and left for dead. It's no wonder that he's called the weeping prophet if you had to endure all of those things. Uh, Davis tells the story of some British troops in World War II who were pinned down somewhere in the Netherlands, and the Germans were shelling the compound where they were staying at, and apparently there was a Roman Catholic chaplain who was there ministering to them, a man named Father Egan, and he went down into the cellar where the, the troops were seeking shelter, and he struck up a conversation with the sergeant there, a man named Jack Spratt, and he was the battalion comedian, if you will, trying to keep everyone calm and make light. Sergeant Spratt told the chaplain, he said, they're throwing everything at us um, but the kitchen stove. And he had barely spoken those words when another shell hit and from the ceiling fell the kitchen stove right at, his, at their feet. And he said, he said, wow, I knew they were close, but I didn't know they could hear us talking even. There's times in in life and ministry when you're convinced that things can't get any worse, but then they do. And it's kind of that way here at the end for Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem. There's already been a a group of people, he's already endured so much, and now the fall has happened. People have been carted off to Babylon. There were some who were left behind. In chapter 24, there was a vision that Jeremiah had of, of a basket, two baskets of figs. One was a basket of, 
good figs and one was full of rotten ones. And, and it was to predict in the exile that the good figs would be taken to Babylon, but the rotten figs would be left behind in, in Jerusalem. And so in chapter 40, Jeremiah is given a choice whether to go with the good figs to Babylon and be taken care of or to stay with the bad figs. And he chooses to stay with them, presumably to bring to them the word of the Lord. But it doesn't take long to see what a mess remains in these chapters. I want you to notice a few things about the, the, the chapters that we're looking at. First, notice there's a tragedy to lament. A tragedy to, to lament. And, and that's really the story of these first few chapters, which I'm going to try to summarize for you uh, this morning. In chapter 40, there was a man named Gedaliah. He's been appointed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's setting up a government for the remaining people who are left in Jerusalem. And uh, Johanan, a military leader, comes to Gedaliah and warns him about a man named Ishmael, who's another military leader who's plotting to assassinate Gedaliah. Chapter 40, verses 13 through 14, we read this. Now Johanan, the son of Kare, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you know that Baal is, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah would not believe them. Now, now Johanan offers to go and kill Ishmael for him to prevent this from happening, but Gedaliah is naive. And at the beginning of chapter 41, which we didn't read, Ishmael comes to visit Gedaliah. He and his ten men assassinate him. And also the Babylonian guards. So this is the king that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And these men have assassinated him and also killed the Babylonian guards. By the end of chapter 41, Johanan overthrows Ishmael, but by this time, the damage is done because Gedaliah is dead, the one Nebuchadnezzar appointed, and the Babylonian guards, and there's likely to be, what do you think, revenge, response from King Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to come and, he's going to come and pay them back. There's going to be consequences for this. And so this is the appeal for the prayer that we read in chapter 42 when they come to Jeremiah and they say, pray to us. We don't know what to do. We don't know whether to stay here or to flee to Egypt. We know that trouble's coming. 42 verses 2 and 3, they said to Jeremiah, let our plea for mercy come before you. Pray to the Lord our God for us, for all this remnant, because we left with but a few as your eyes see, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. And notice their response. This is interesting. Verses 5 and 6. They said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we don't act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends to us. Whether it's good or bad, we're, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. You know, it's mentioned there several times. They're saying, just tell us what the Lord says, what the word of the Lord is, and we promise that we're going to obey it, even if it's not what we want to hear. Now, we've already been given a hint. We didn't read it, but back in chapter 41, verse 17, tells us, a little background of this, that they had already left Jerusalem and they were in Bethlehem, which was south. Chapter 41, verse 17 tells us that they were already intending to go to Egypt. 
They'd already started. And they're asking for prayer, for a word from the Lord about this. Davis notes this, it was clear that they were wanting the, what they were wanting the Lord's will to be, in other words. About 10 days later, Jeremiah gives them an answer. Chapter 42 again, he, he tells them, if you remain in this land, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you up. I'm not going to pull you down. I'm going to plant you and not pluck you up. For I will relent of the disaster that I did to you. Don't fear the king of Babylon whom you're afraid. You don't need to fear him. I'm with you to save you, to deliver you from his hand. I'm going to grant you mercy. But you need to remain in the land. That's what he says. Verse 15 The second part there of chapter 42, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and there you shall die. But this wasn't the answer that they wanted to hear from the Lord. It's not what they wanted to hear. They've already intended to go to Egypt. So chapter 43, when Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words, with which the Lord, the God, had sent, sent him to them. Azariah, the son of Hoshai, and Johanan, the, the son of Kare, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, you're telling a lie. That was their response. You're telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, don't go to Egypt to live there. Baruch put you up to this. And verse 7 says, they didn't obey the voice of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? God had given them a clear answer through Jeremiah. They were not to go to Egypt, for the Lord's going to grant them mercy in the sight of King Nebuchadnezzar, but it was not the answer from the Lord they expected, nor was it the answer from the Lord that they wanted. It's, it's an insightful warning for us, isn't it? It's almost like they approached this prayer, this request for the word of the Lord. It's almost like they believed it was God's job to approve of what they wanted to do rather than to actually hear and submit to what God was wanting them to do. Derek Kidner in his commentary says they could not imagine that God's will was not in line with their own desires. It's amazing to me how many people live that way today. Well, I, you know, and we hear these arguments all the time. Perhaps you hear them. Maybe you make them. I don't know. But we have these desires to do this. We have desires to do that. We, we, and then we think it must be okay because we have these desires. I'm just following after my heart. What could be so wrong with that? God made me. God put me these. He's made me, right? He's created me. I've got these desires in me. What could be so wrong with following my desires? Surely God wants me to be happy. I've even prayed about this. But what about the Word of God? What about it? You understand that if you start taking that mindset with God's Word and with your desires, that effectively your, your call to worship comes, uh, becomes something like this. Come, let us bow down and kneel before the Lord, our puppet. 
the God of our own making, the God of our own desires, who just happens to desire all that we desire. Because, in effect, we're putting our desires above His Word. Do you see the fallacy of such thinking? In essence, you've created a God for yourself who's just like you, who desires what you desires. You desire. Well, this isn't the tragedy to the men. We're not there yet. A little bit further. Jeremiah is forced to go with them to Egypt. And there he has another word from the Lord to them, a prophecy to them. This is chapter 44, verse 8. Here's what the Lord says now that they're in Egypt. And we already know what this is going to happen because we've seen it happen over and over again. The pattern of, of, of this behavior of going to Egypt. Lord says, the Lord says, why do you provoke me? Chapter 44, verse 8, why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? Again, it's another clear word from God. You're now in Egypt. You're worshiping other gods. But notice the people's response. Verse 16 and 17, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. We're going to worship the queen of heaven. And that brings us to the tragedy. Here's the tragedy in verse 25. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths, have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Here's what God says. He says, then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Go right ahead. Worship the queen of heaven. God says, you want the queen of heaven as your God? You can have her. You can have her. This is God handing them over to what they wanted to do. And beloved, this is the worst tragedy of all. It's been a long time ago that we were in Romans chapter 1, but you remember how important that passage was. It talked about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. And you remember in, in that chapter, three times we read there of God and His judgment handing the people over to do the sin that they refuse to let go of. Three times, he says, I'm handing you over. It means to be handed over to judgment. And, and other than the, the final judgment in which sinners are cast into hell, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to you as a sinner. As they refuse to give God the rightful place He deserves in their lives, God abandons them to this moral tailspin. In effect, He says, you want to keep going this way? You refuse to listen? Then have at it. Those who refuse to say to God, thy will be done, God says to them, well then, your will be done. And because they reject God, he rejects them. If you keep 
turning your back on God's word, if you get to the place where you can willfully exchange the truth of God's word for a lie, if you pursue that lie with all of your will, then know this, God will give you over to your sin, to your desires in judgment. And that is a tragedy to lament. That's a warning too, isn't it? Similar to the end of chapters 34 through 39, there was, there, there's also a promise to embrace. There is, again, an alternative, alternative path offered to us in chapter 45. It's just a few verses there of a prophecy given to Baruch, who was Jeremiah's faithful scribe. Chapter 45, verse 2, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said... Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. Verse 1 tells us that prophecy was made 20 years before this moment in Egypt. It was made during King Jehoiakim's reign. And remember, he was the one that cut up the scroll piece by piece and threw it in the fire. Um, apparently, Baruch, when he was writing down that very prophecy that was given and read to King Jehoiakim, it, it really affected him. The contents of that word from the Lord, from Jeremiah, that he wrote down, Baruch wrote down, what, the, the judgment that was coming, it was so heavy, it was agonizing him, saddening him. He was grieving over what was coming. But here, the Lord seems to encourage Baruch not just to think about the, what the coming judgment would mean for him, but, but think about it from God's perspective. God says, behold, I, I, what I have built, I'm breaking down. What I've planted, I'm plucking. That is the whole land. And then the Lord, in effect, tells him, you may not enjoy a normal life. This is, this is not going to be a pleasant thing to go through, this judgment, the judgment that is coming. But I'm giving you a promise, Baruch. I'll give you your life as a prize of war in all places that you go. So that promise given 20 years earlier is placed right here in chapter 5 as they are arriving. They're getting to Egypt. It's as if it's on Baruch's mind. God says, I'll give you your life in all the places that you go. Here in Egypt, in the face of fresh hostility and challenges against him, in the midst of people who have forsaken God and his word in Egypt, here Davis notes, Baruch is holding on to an old promise in a new situation. Now, I know that promise was given to him and not to all of us, but it does remind us and, and speak to us, I think, about how God often, how he keeps his his fragile and hated people. 
how he keeps them, how he preserves them, how God preserves us in very fearful and precarious kinds of situations that we find ourselves in. You think about that in the the scope of the Bible, how often we see this, how God's people are over and over again, they seem to be brought to the the very brink of of extinction even at times. Like like we we saw this in our study through Genesis on Wednesday nights. We talked about that little family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and how frail they were over and over again. we, We kept wondering to ourselves, how is this? this family ever going to make it? How are they going to get through this? When we look around today and we see God's battered flock, his church, and we wonder, can God bring anything from this? And yet over and over again, we see in the midst of unfaithfulness, there is always a remnant of God's people. So chapters 34 through 39 ended with their the fall of Jerusalem and Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech standing there like two brands just plucked out of the fire. I mean, they're, they're the only ones left standing in a sense. And now here at the end of this chapter, here's Baruch added with them. You know, we can look around today and we look at the American church and things seem so bleak at times. I mean, the loss of courageous leadership that we see, the famine of faithful preaching, the apathy of hearing of God's people hearing his word, the decline in attendance and membership and baptisms and an unwillingness to evangelize. And then when you do get glimpses of the faithful church, church in, in the world, they're always under persecution. Things often look bleak for the church of Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which that's always been the story, though. It's always been that way. God's people bruised and battered, weak and wounded, all throughout the Scripture. The first Christians were hunted down by emperors in Rome and scattered across the Middle East. And then the Christians after that in the Middle Ages were surrounded by barbarianism. And then the Christians of the Reformation were branded as as outlaws, Uh, Today, believers in the Middle East are uh, opposed by Islam. In China, they're oppressed by communism. In Europe and America, they're worn down by atheism and secularism. And on and on it goes. And yet, and yet, if you belong to that remnant through faith in Jesus Christ, you can say with God's people down through the ages, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. It's always a promise. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Aren't you thankful for that promise? And we see it kind of pictured here with Baruch, a terrible circumstance and situation. There he is. God says, I'll give you your life. Lastly, as we close our study of Jeremiah, there is a question to consider. And this isn't in the text, but I think it's something that we, we can process from the text. 
the, The question is this, was Jeremiah's ministry a failure? And I ask that sincerely, and I would ask this, would his story have made it into the Baptist newspapers today? Would he have been platformed at the big church growth conferences? You think about this, think about the scope of what we've read, what we've learned. I mean, no king ever paid attention to Jeremiah's message. I mean, not one of them, really. The people wouldn't hear the message either. As a result, most of them were exiled into Babylonian captivity. The ones that are left are the the bad figs, and I mean, they're in quite a mess. And now they've ignored God's word. They went down to Egypt where apparently Jeremiah dies. What are we to make of all of that? How do you process that? How do you stand back and say, "What, what just happened here? Was this... But was Jeremiah's ministry a a failure? It was John Bright who wrote this in a commentary half a century ago concerning Jeremiah. He wrote, he, he was, speaking of Jeremiah, let it be admitted, as the world evaluates such things, a failure. A heroic failure, to be sure, but a failure nevertheless. His words were never at any time heeded. <laughs> he could not, for all of his efforts, deter his people from the suicidal course that he knew they were following, nor was he a man who was able to achieve serenity, some triumphant inner peace in the midst of the frustrations that beset him. John Bright wrote. He's right, isn't he? The the only people Jeremiah seemed to have touched was a foreign slave named Ebed-Melech and uh, uh, an upper-class fellow named Baruch who was his scribe. That's pretty much it. That's what we're left with at the end of the book here. And you can't help but ask, what in the world is the use of a ministry like that? Forty years? I hope, and I think you know this in your heart, that we could agree of what this may not mean. And that is, that it does not mean that God was not somehow pleased with Jeremiah's ministry. That such faithfulness in the midst of, of, of futility, if you will, was not somehow pleasing to God. We know it's not that, right? Right? No, Jeremiah's experience teaches us that you, apparently, there, there are some situations, not every situation, but some situations in which you can serve the Lord and meet nothing but hardship, trouble, anguish, and frustration with very little fruit to show from it. And still be pleasing to God? Do you believe that? We always pray and we strive and hope for fruit in our service to the Lord. But when the harvest is small or sometimes doesn't come right away, Jeremiah teaches us it doesn't mean that the ministry was a failure. You may go on meeting one failure after another and seeing no success in the Lord's cause and then perhaps coming to the end of your days with a sense of some kind of abysmal disappointment in all of this and yet finish well in the Lord's eyes because precisely because you have been faithful in the Lord's work. Our Christian discipleship is like that, isn't it? Our own walks, our own 
desires to serve and, and follow the Lord. Hebrews 11, uh, at the end of the faith chapter there, verses 32 through 40, it, it, it's a great reminder of, of how easily we can distort some things by only looking at one side of the evidence. You remember that passage, Hebrews 11, 32 through 35, it talks about those who through faith, and it has this litany of things. They conquered kingdoms, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched fires, they routed foreign armies, they raised the dead. I mean, the kind of big stuff that, yes, But we often forget the rest of that passage that tells us that faithfulness may also involve, it goes on to say, and it just almost abruptly talks about torture and chains and saws and wandering around in sheep's clothing and trying to find shelter in in caves because you're running for your life. And the writer of Hebrews is emphatic that all of them were commended for their faith their faithfulness. So faithfulness in futility is never useless, but it is always commended by God. Always commended by God. Jeremiah may have been a failure as the world evaluates things, but let's acknowledge not as God sees things. So be encouraged faithful Christians. Be encouraged today. At the end of the day, the question still remains, will we hear and heed the word of the Lord? Because that is faithfulness. Hearing, heeding the word of the Lord. Our salvation depends on that hearing and heeding. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hearing involves believing the gospel, believing what it says about you and your sinfulness before God, believing in His Son, a Savior who died and rose again for you. Will you hear and believe salvation is at stake. Our spiritual growth hinges on the same thing, doesn't it? On hearing and obeying God's word. Because the moment that we stop hearing and obeying the, God's word is the moment that we stop growing spiritually. Are you centering your life around his word? We said from the beginning that the book of Jeremiah is about this. Chapter 44, verse 28 that all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live, that they shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs, God says. Beloved, in the end, it will not be your desires that stand. It will be the word of God that stands forever. And our response is to heed and obey that word. Lord, thank you for the message of Jeremiah. Pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged today from it to be faithful in hearing and 
obeying it. And Lord, I pray for those that may be here today, who perhaps some who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, that on hearing this gospel message one, one more time, Lord, that you would work in their hearts. Give them ears to hear and eyes to see and save them, Lord, from their sin and death. I pray that they would turn and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, help us believers as we think about these things, um, remind ourselves of of the importance of, of your word in our lives. It's not about how we feel. It's not about our personal desires. It's not about what we want you to say, Lord. It is about what you have said. And so, Lord, let us conform our lives to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.